My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. I made myself a promise this morning that I'm not going to talk about the weather one time during the sermon, not once, all right? Because I'm not bitter at all. So anyway, uh, thank you for praying for our church, uh, for our Easter weekend. For those of you who prayed for Good Friday services and Easter services, your prayers were answered. We had an amazing, amazing weekend of worship around here. And so we thank you for that. Keep the prayers coming because prayer matters. And we are a church that believes in prayer. So we're always asking the church to pray for what's going on here. Amen. That's a great thing to do together. And uh, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles. If you were here last Sunday, you know we launched a new series in the book of 1 John. And so last week, it was a very brief intro. This morning, what I need to do is I need to give John a proper introduction. So we're going to go back to 1 John chapter 1 and then some selected verses in 1 John. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Ushers are coming now. We want you to have the written word there in front of you. And to get us started today, I'm going to tell you the story of my experience with the Rajneeshis. Heard of them? <laughs> Binge watch Netflix recently? Okay. Uh, or maybe uh, you grew up in Oregon or you lived in Oregon. I, I want to let you know right now, I'm not in that picture, all right? But, but uh, I just want to give you a little context here. I want to talk to you today about my experience with the Rajneesh Param and all of the goings-on out there it was a crazy time in the history of our state. And if you are an Oregonian, you know a lot about it. If you are, maybe if you're here and you aren't an Oregonian, ask somebody. But um, there was a situation where a spiritual guru named the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh moved out here and he was an extremely powerful spiritual leader and he was able to deceive a lot of people and thousands of people moved out to a property in eastern Oregon and um, built what is called the Rajneesh Param. And I want to tell you a little bit about my experience out there. We can take that picture down now because I'm disturbed by it. But anyway, <laughs> uh, let me just tell you real quick that uh, I was in my first year on Young Life staff back in my prior life before I come into River West. I was on the Young Life staff. I was an area director in Eugene. In my first year on the Young Life staff, this piece of property was given to Young Life to be converted into a Christian camp that would share the gospel with Christian, with kids all over the country. Amen? Isn't that a great thing? And uh, I got an opportunity to be on the ground, a part of a work crew. I got a phone call from my um, boss at the time who said, we got to get this property set up for Young Life Camping. Um, so can you recruit about 50 college kids? I was in Eugene, and so my area had the U of O down there. So I came out to the property with about 50 college kids, and we did a bunch of work out there. We basically inherited the property, and it was left pretty much the way they left it. It was really weird, really wacky. It was basically a sex cult. Uh, that's like a short way to describe it. And so we had to convert it into something that could be used for Christian ministry, all right? And so um, I never dressed in orange, all right? I, I didn't move out there. I, the closest I got to the Bhagwan was being on the property after Young Life got it. And to be honest with you, that was about as close as I ever need to be. So let me tell you a little bit about it. 
The Rajneesh Param was a city that was built on 64,000 acres that was purchased in 1981 for $15.5 million, our currency. And whatever was going on out there, he was able to recruit thousands of people in a matter of years. They converted basically 64,000 acres of dead land and rocks into a city with an airport, a shopping mall, with hotels, a casino, an airstrip, and the fourth largest public transit system in the state of Oregon. At one point, over 7,000 people lived on the property. And when I was out there working and working with kids, one of the things that I experienced right away was this sense of how in the world was this guy able to get people to come out and do this? Like what was going on here? How could a guy get 7,000 people to quit their jobs, drop their lives, liquidate their assets and give them to him, which is what they did when they would join the commune? And these were not these were not the poor or the undereducated. These were highly educated lawyers, engineers, doctors, physicists who left everything to become a part of this movement. Amazing. And you go, how did he do this? I think it had something to do with the way that he defined love. The Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh taught a form of spirituality in which he mixed sort of Buddhist enlightenment with Freudian sexual psychotherapy and meditation. And in his version of spirituality, each person is the center of the spiritual universe and the, and the, the pathway to truth involves shedding off all of your inhibitions and participating wholesale in meditation and sexual worship. In one famous teaching called Being in Love, he taught, and I quote, I am teaching you to be selfish. Let me repeat it because the word selfishness has been condemned so much. There's a reason for that, by the way. But anyway, that's another sermon. (laughs) There's every possibility you will misunderstand me, but the word is really beautiful. To be selfish simply means to be yourself. I say to you, don't consider anybody else in the world. Just consider yourself. You could draw a crowd teaching like that, I would imagine. (laughs) You are told to love the neighbor, but you've never loved yourself. A person who has not loved himself, how can he love the neighbor? From where can he get love unless he has first loved himself? Amazing. I mean, I, I suppose that if, that was that if that's how you define love, that, that would be really popular, especially if you mix it with a lot of sexuality, right? It would draw a crowd, okay? But let me tell you something really important. If you, if you try to define love and you do it in such a way where you completely remove God as, as a, as a starting point or even a point of reference, 
you will certainly end up with a definition of love that's attractive and makes for great sound bites and, and initially seems so compelling because it allows people to experience instant gratification and it will be popular and you could draw a crowd, but it will always be a definition of love that will ultimately leave people with a massive hole in their heart because it will be a kind of love that's ultimately hollow and shallow and actually harmful. And this is why I'm so thankful for the book of 1 John. Because the book of 1 John is all about love. Perfect, divine, gospel love. Boy, do we need that, River West. Do we need that? Amen. This book that we're going to study together as a church from front to back is about love. The word love, and it's the agape form of that word, shows up over 46 times in five chapters and some of the most beautiful, profound, powerful statements about divine love come to us from the book of 1 John. Let me just give you an example. I'm going to give you a barrage of statements from 1 John. These will be on the screen. Don't turn there. In a minute, we'll read together. Here's a couple of the phrases we get from the book of 1 John. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. If 1 Corinthians 13 is the chapter on love, 1 John is the love letter in the New Testament, the whole thing. And let me tell you something, River West. We, we need in our church and we need in our culture, we need an expert on love. And John is that expert. But you may be saying, why? Why is John qualified to write the manifesto on love? Well, let's find out. We read with me chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Here's how John opens his letter. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Stop there. When you read 1 John, we're going to read 1 John. I'm going to ask you to read 1 John. When you read this letter and when you read John's gospel and when you read anything that John wrote, you get this feeling that John was intimately acquainted with Jesus. And it's because he was. You read it and you, and you, you get the sense John had the privilege of close proximity to Love that had come down from heaven in the person of Jesus Christ. And the reason for that is because John actually did have close proximity to Jesus. 
When you read the Gospels, you discover that John was a part of a group of three disciples who really made up an inner circle, even within the 12. There were 12 disciples, but in that group, there were three that Jesus had brought into an inner circle. And these three were given the privilege of being invited into some of the most intimate moments in the life of Christ, the most powerful moments. When Jesus went into the home of of Jairus, the, the synagogue ruler, to heal his daughter, the only three that he invited in were John, Peter, and James. When Jesus went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and he revealed his glory, the only three disciples he invited up were John, Peter, and James. When Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane and he fell on his knees in anguish, and blood came out of his pores, and he prayed. The three disciples that he invited were John, Peter, and James. And John, in particular, tells us, I had a unique relationship with Jesus. Did you know that John was called the disciple whom Jesus loved? He had this unique friendship with Christ. There's a moment in John's gospel where Jesus has told the disciples at the Last Supper that one of them would betray him and he's in anguish over it. And, 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 and John is there leaning up against Christ in this moment. I want to read how, how John describes it. Um, Jesus has shared these things. He's deeply troubled. This is John 13. It's just on the screens here. And one of uh, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved as John, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? It's this amazing moment. You can imagine that you're there. Jesus has just dropped this bomb. Hey, one of you is going to betray me. And Peter looks at John and he's like, ask him which one it is. You know? John's like, why me? You're the one he loves. You ask him, you know. (gasps) John leads in, okay? John became the apostle of love. He was uniquely qualified to write a manifesto on love. And let me tell you something, River West. What the world needs now is a godly, biblical understanding of love. The world needs it. And we need it as a church. Here's what's going to happen. We're going to study this book. And as we study it, uh, we're going to find that there are three aspects of divine love that John is going to emphasize over and over and over. I'm going to share them with you today. I want you to write these down. They're going to become the lens you're going to need in order to get the most out of this study. Three sides of love that John wants us to know about. They are the source of love, the definition of love and the obligation of love. And over and over, John's going to come back to these themes. And so today we'll, we'll just introduce them, unpack them slightly, and then you'll have these as you read the book in your own personal devotional life and as you come back each Sunday. So let's start with the, the source of love. John's going to drive home again and again in this letter that the God of Scripture is the source and the origin of all love in the universe. The biblical creator God of Scripture, he is the origin. He is the source of all love. Have you ever heard the phrase, 
God is love. It's very familiar where we know that phrase. It's so familiar that you would think that it shows up all over the Bible, but it actually, that phrase only appears in this letter, 1 John, both times in chapter four. We get that concept from John. We'll read that passage in just a minute. But John, John says with authority, God is love. And you hear the phrase and you think, God is love. I wonder what John means. What, is, what does he mean? God is love. Is John saying that love is, the, love is the way that you define God? Is he saying everything you would want to know about God can be explained through love? Is love like the exhaustive way to define God? I don't think that's what John's saying at all. I think what John is saying is, in his very nature, God is love. Love doesn't necessarily define God, but God certainly exhaustively defines love. His very nature is to love. Love is from God the way heat is from fire or the way light is from the sun. The sun gives light because the sun is light. A fire gives heat because a fire is heat. The Oregon sky gives rain because the Oregon sky is rain. Oh, wait, I, <laughs> hold on. And God gives love because God is love. Now, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest something, and it's going to get suggested over and over in the series. Love is not something that humans can generate on our own. We do not have the ability to fabricate love if we disconnect from God. Love is something you receive from God before you can give it to anyone else because God is love. Let me read an amazing verse in 1 John chapter 3. Will you turn there with me? 1 John chapter 3. Verse 1. John erupts into an outburst of wonder when he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. John says, What kind of love is this? I love that phrase, see what kind of love. It literally, in the Greek, it means from what country? John, he's basically saying the love of God is so out of this world. It's so foreign that I, I want to know, know what country it's from. Where is this love from? It's so incredible. I don't even know how to describe it. And John says, do you want to know how, do you want to know whether or not you have come under the full outpouring of the love of God? Here's how you know. You experience a transformation at the very core of your identity. You become a child of God. You see it? And it's not just something you, we call ourselves. John says, it's not just a title. It's an actual change of identity. Something inside of you is changed at its core and you become a child of God. And John says that change is so fundamental. It, it takes you down to the basics that the only, the, the best way to describe it is it's almost like being born again, a new birth. Born of God. It's one of John's favorite phrases. You've been born of God. 
John says, that's how you know you've been transformed by the love of God. You become his child. You're no longer an orphan. You're no longer disconnected. You're no longer out in the world alone. God grafts you into his family and calls you son and daughter. Amazing. In our study, we're going to discover that everything about our lives is a response to the love of God. God is the source, and everything about our lives as believers is really just a response to his initiating love. And so let me tell you something about our series. Will you pull out your bulletin and look at the bulletin cover? We batted around a lot of titles for this. Pastor Christopher suggested love is a battlefield, but we didn't go with that one. (laughs) What's love got to do with it? Lots of things we could have called this. But we went with, because he loves us, dot, dot, dot. And here's what's going to happen. Every Sunday, when you come in here, a pastor is going to get up out of the book of John, and that pastor is going to fill in that phrase. Because he loves us, we've been born again. Because he loves us, we can walk in his light. Because he loves us, because he loves us, everything about the life of faith is a response to the love of God. That's aspect number one. God is the source. Here is aspect number two, the definition of love. And here's what John is going to say over and over throughout this letter. He's going to tell us that only God has the right and the wisdom to define love. Only God has the right to do that. And only God has the wisdom to do that. It makes sense. If God is the source of love, God gets to define love. Now, this is actually much more important than you may realize because whatever your definition of love is, that definition is playing out in every aspect of your life. Every relationship It's spilling into your life, your definition of love. And we're living in a world where there is no end to opinions about love, definitions of love. For every person in our city, there's a different definition of love. A group of researchers a couple years ago went into an elementary school and they asked a group of four to eight-year-olds the same question, what is love? And then they just listened And they wrote down all the different responses. And you got to love children, their hearts. It's just amazing. So I want to share a couple of these with you. What is love? Here's what Rebecca said, age eight. When my grandmother got arthritis, isn't it great how kids always start with a story? Um, Okay, so let me tell you a story about my grandmother. One time she had arthritis. She couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands get arthritis too. That's love. Here's Karen, age seven. When you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. (laughs) It's pretty good. Here's Noel, age seven. Love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt and then he wears it every day. (laughs) Like that. Okay, so then some people asked a group of adults the same question, and I'd like you to note the contrast. 
So here's adult number one. Love is that human emotion that is caused by a chemical imbalance of serotonin in the brain. Love is a form of amnesia that causes a girl to forget that there are 1.2 billion other guys in the world. (laughs) Bitter much? I would say so. Love is nature's way of tricking people into reproducing. Okay, there we go. So you see the contrast. But here's the question, really. How does God define love? I mean, that's what I want to know. How does God define love? Well, turn to John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. And I could go to a dozen places because the same thing is going to come through. I'll just show you one. Here's what John said. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that God loved us. Just put your finger there, and let me tell you something, River West. God is the first lover. God loves, and then we respond. No human being loves before God. Loves. Now, there's other... There's other watered-down, second-hand versions of love in our world, certainly, but they're always a version of love that the farther you get away from God, those versions of love become more and more hollow. They lack oomph. But what we need is the substance. And it comes from God and God alone. So what does John say? 1 John 4.10 He says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation, it's a big word. We're going to unpack it in the weeks to come. But but for now, just think, Jesus came into the world to, to die for sin, to be the atoning sacrifice for human sin. And and God says, do you want a definition of love? I'm not going to give you a sentence. I'm not going to give you words. I'm not going to give you propositions. I'm going to give you a person. And if you watch his life, and if you watch what he did, you will see the ultimate manifestation of love. You will see love defined in the action of a human, perfect human being. Amazing. John says, Jesus is the ultimate manifestation of love. Now, there are manifestations of God's love in creation. Paul said, his divine attributes are always on display in the things that are made, which means we can look outside and we will see undeniable evidence of the character of God, his love, his power, his creativity. And if you look at the history of the people of God, the people of Israel, you see manifestations of God's love in delivering them, redeeming them, choosing them, making him, them his people. But, but John says the ultimate manifestation is Jesus Christ and his life and death and resurrection. Amazing. God says, I define love as self-giving. 
I define love as sacrifice for the good of another. I define love as being against sin. Because when you love someone, you're always against anything that would harm them. Right? That's what love is. If I was standing at my kitchen window and I looked out my window into my backyard and I saw one of my little girls when they were really young picking up a mushroom out of the forest and about to eat it, I would yell at the top of my lungs, no! Because I don't know, is that a shiitake, right? Or is that a psychedelic Rajneeshi mushroom? I don't know, you know, what's she about to eat? Now, is my no unloving or is my no an expression of being against anything that would harm one of my girls. And so we're living in a culture that's really confusing because we have so many definitions of love and it becomes difficult to navigate. There's a, there's a, a scholar and a Christian philosopher named Gabe Lyons And he did a survey where he polled young Americans who don't go to church. And he asked them, what is your view of Christians? What do you think of Christian people? These are young, non-church-going Americans. And the the results are not pretty. 95% chose the word unloving. 91% chose the word bigoted. They got to choose multiple words. 87% chose the word judgmental. 85% chose the word hypocritical. 70% chose the word insensitive to others. And we hear that in our hearts break. My heart breaks. I hear that. I'm like, "Ah." you know, and it can be confusing. How, How should we respond to something like that? You know, and there's a couple reasons why this might be true. Listen really carefully to what I'm about to say. I think this is really critical. One reason that that this might be happening is that sometimes it's actually kind of true. We're not as loving as we ought to be. And the reason I know this is because I am guilty party number one. Where I can be judgmental and, and and I hate it and I'm so thankful for grace and that God convicts my heart. But that is not actually the primary reason for something like this. Let me tell you what I think is going on here. If our culture takes the word love, hijacks it away from God, and then redefines it, they could use a new definition as the standard by which they now tell Christians, you are no longer loving. And that's exactly what's happening. Our culture has taken a word, hijacked it, watered it down, flipped it upside down, removed God completely from the definition, and now that is the standard by which our culture is condemning others of being unloving. Because if in your definition of love, love means there's, you can never put any boundaries up, you can never tell someone that anything's wrong in their life. If love is just pure emotion or it's overly conflated with sexuality, suddenly you have a very different version of love. And of course, that version of love doesn't look anything like the love that the church is called to. Right? 
And so for outsiders, they're, they don't, they're, they're not seeing this. But this is why where we're going in a minute is so critical. Hear me clearly. We do have a responsibility to display love. We just have to make sure we get the definition right. A couple years ago, a woman in our church came to meet with me. She'd been coming to the church for a year. And she said, I've got to tell you my story. When I first came to the church, I had waited for a long time because my friends told me, do not go to that church. They, they're bigoted there. They're unloving. But I felt like I should come. And I came and I, I, I was blown away. People loved me. And then I started learning the gospel and I got it. I started seeing the God of love and the love of Christ. And I'm just so surprised by what I found here. Right before the service this morning, Chris Hotze, my friend, came up and he said, this week I got to see a window into the true heart of this church. He said, we have a, we have a couple in our church where the, the wife is in the fight of her life against cancer. They're broken. They feel isolated. And, and Chris said, I have been there in the hospital and I've basically seen a non-stop barrage of river westers coming, sacrificing time, meals, prayers, professional services to gather around this couple and to love them in the name of Christ. Jesus said, John 15, 13, there's no greater love than this than a person would lay down his life for his friends. God says, that's the definition of love. And we need to learn it. We need to learn it. So we've got the source of love. We have the definition of love. And finally, and this is going to lead us to communion. John's going to say there's an obligation that comes with love. John's going to teach us that since God is the source of love and since he has loved us perfectly in Christ, we have an obligation. We are now obligated to learn how to love one another with Christ as our example. Got to learn how to do this. It takes hard work. We're not perfect. We have so much to do together, right? Got to learn how to love each other. John was the oldest living disciple he lived well into his 90s. He lived till 98 AD. All of the other uh, disciples died. Many of them were martyred for their faith. But John lived until the very last day. And think about this for just a minute. You have a man who had been in the presence of Jesus Christ, and then he had had decades to reflect on what he had learned and then, then you'd ask the question, what was the, when he finally wrote a letter, and 1 John was one of the last things he wrote, what was the, the emphasis of that letter? What did he decide? This is like the most important thing that's got to come through. It's one thing for a 20-year-old to write a book, but what about a 98-year-old? What would they emphasize? Love that. There's a story told about John, told by Jerome, the early church father, and he said, when, in his last year of life, John lived in Ephesus and he was so old he couldn't get to church. So a group of, of the brothers and sisters would come to his home and they would pick John up and they would carry him into the church. Imagine just this really old man and they would bring him into the church and they would set him down right in the middle of the congregation. And every week 
John would say the same thing because he only had strength to get one sentence out. He would muster strength and he would say, little children, love each other. And then they would carry on in their worship and then he'd come back the next time, little children, love each other. Now it's profound the first time, but after you keep repeating it, it gets kind of annoying, you know? And so then the church is like, John, why do you keep saying the same thing over and over and over? And here's what John said. He said, because it's the Lord's command. And because if we only do this, it will be enough. Which I take, I take to mean John is saying, we can't even get that right, so why would I move on to something more complex, right? We're not even, we have not even figured out how to love one another, and yet that was the thing that Jesus commanded us to do. On the night that Jesus was to be crucified, he gathered his disciples for a final meal, and at that meal, he stood up from the table, he took off his outer garment, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And then he came to each of his friends and he did something scandalous. He took a bowl, a basin of water, and he got down on his knees and he assumed the very lowest role in society, the servant, the slave who would wash feet. And he, he began to wash his disciples' feet one by one by one. And when he had finished, here's what John says happens. I'll put this on the screen. John 13, verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. Now, is Jesus saying we should actually physically wash each other's feet? Do not come back next week with a basin of water, all right? It will get awkward. This is not what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, I want you to see in this moment the heart of love, self-sacrifice, service. Then Jesus said in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's amazing. We have so much to learn. River West. Because God said, Jesus is the perfect manifestation of love and now the church will carry on the legacy. And as the church learns how to love one another, the world will see the love of God in Christ. So we have an assignment. We have to learn how to do this. I hope you'll come back. Will you read 1 John as a part of your devotional life? Will you study it? Will you enjoy it? And then will you come back and join us? Let's let's learn how to love one another with Christ as our example. Amen? I'm going to pray about that. Will you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. But even that, even even saying that or the ability to say that is, is a response 
to you, to your love. We could never say that if you had not loved us first. Everything about this moment is a response to your perfect love in Christ, which we celebrate today with grateful hearts. In a moment, we'll go to the table and we'll remember and thank you again for this perfect, descriptive, depictive definition of true divine love. The sacrifice of our Savior Jesus for our sins in our place so that we could be set free. And we pray that as a church we'll learn how to love one another like that, Lord. Thank you. Would you continue to speak, Lord, as we as we worship, as we sing, as we fellowship with one another, would you continue to move in our church, we pray. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen. amen.